Welcome back to Ford Momentum. I spent a lot of time in the last few weeks talking about auctions, happenings in the watch world, and Steve McQueen. So why should this episode be any different? We had a race in Sao Paulo over the weekend, and with one race remaining in the season, it's not the nail-biter that last season was, where there were two worthy contenders and whatever happened, one would have the joy of victory and the other the agony of defeat. This year, with both the Drivers and Constructors Championships wrapped up, drivers are just racing to do what they love, race cars. But there are also drivers competing for the overall driver standings, and while they may not become the world champion this year, those points matter to drivers and constructors alike. We saw a few teammate blowups this week, a few collisions and close calls amongst teammates, and racing drivers generally acting like racing drivers. There isn't much happening on the watch front, but in the lull between auctions and the end of the Formula One season, I thought it might be fun to dive into the courts crisis, the rise of big group brands, and understand how we got to the landscape we're in today. Let's get into it. My name is Todd Searle. I'm obsessed with watches. I pay attention to them everywhere I see them. One place I've been surprised to see them frequently is in the cockpit of Formula One cars. I'm a crazed Formula One fan, and I keep noticing watch brands sponsoring cars, races, and I kept seeing them pop up on drivers' wrists. I wanted to understand why watch brands lean so heavily on the world of motorsport. This is Forward Momentum, where we explore the interconnection between watches and the world of motorsport, luxury goods, gear, and the creators behind those brands. Welcome to Ford Momentum. Well, we had a hell of a weekend racing in Brazil. I know many are against the sprint format, but I thought it provided us with some fantastic racing. And frankly, with the championship decided and the season grinding to a close, it was necessary. In qualifying itself, there was a bit of a shocker with Kevin Magnuson of the Haas team qualifying on pole, and the entire team got to celebrate that one. KMAG was fast on track, but it was a red flag caused by George Russell and some super foul weather that would allow him to take pole. Russell, for his troubles, was able to clean up in the sprint and take P1, followed by cleaning up on the race and taking his first ever Formula One race win. Good for George, especially after his spin in qualifying. So, I would say he's redeemed himself. For the first time this year, we had a Mercedes 1-2, not the 1-2 that we're used to seeing with the Hamilton in the winner's seat, but during the Grand Prix, there was great racing up and down the midfield with passes galore and hard racing everywhere you looked. It was awesome. If every race was Brazil, I wouldn't be upset. And while K-Mag might have qualified on pole and led the sprint for a lap, it wasn't to last. Haas also hadn't given a definitive answer on the fate of Mick Schumacher by this point, but with his teammate qualifying on pole and him qualifying DFL, it didn't look too good for Mick. Unfortunately, K-Mag would be taken out in the Grand Prix by Daniel Ricciardo, and it's not a great reflection on Ricciardo either and it might not help his prospects as he looks to find a team with whom he can return to the grid in 2024. Now, let's get on with some teammate spats where we saw some interesting behavior up and down the track from all sorts of different players in this game. 
Alonso and Ocon came together in the early stages of the race, and there is no love lost between those teammates as Alonso moves on to fill Sebastian Vettel's seat at Aston Martin. In the Aston Martin camp, Lance Stroll pushed teammate Sebastian Vettel wide and won a penalty for the maneuver defending against his teammate in a silly spat. Further on in the race, Carlos Sainz of Ferrari was running in third with his teammate Charles Leclerc behind him. In the final laps of the race, Leclerc asked the team to please consider the world championships points and invert the cars. There are two problems with that. The first problem with Charles' logic here is that with the driver's championship decided, this maneuver would mean taking a podium from his teammate. Also, the second issue here is that Charles had Alonso, Verstappen, and Perez hot on his gearbox, and Charles rather made himself look bad by repeatedly asking for this move to be completed. Finally, in the closing stages of the race, with Perez ahead of Verstappen, Red Bull decided to invert the cars and let Max through to see if he could take on Alonso for fifth, and Max was told that if he could not get the move done, that he and Perez would swap places and Perez would get his original place back before the lap ended. Well, Max just repeatedly ignored the radio calls and ignored the team in order to swap places back, making himself look bad and making him seem like what many fans think he is. He didn't help his cause with this maneuver, and Checo was outspoken about it after the race, claiming that it showed Max's true colors. Max really didn't have a defense here and doesn't have a defense. It just paints him in a bad light. And the team has decided that they won't make any more public comments on this and say that they've solved the issue internally. I honestly believe that 23 races are getting to everyone at this point and that everyone is burnt out with frayed nerves. We've got one race to go in Abu Dhabi, and I have to say, I'm ready for the season to draw to a close. I think that 24 races next season is going to feel a bit bonkers and is going to start to feel like a lot for fans, let alone for the teams, drivers, and all of the staff that complete an F1 team. I think fans will feel it next year too, and I'm curious to see the viewership numbers throughout the season. I can definitely see a world in which there's a mid-season slump in viewership as people lose interest and come back at the end of the season, especially if one team is running away with the championship. I'll be curious to see how that shakes out, but that's a conversation for next season, or perhaps during the off-season, as we get to our last race here in Abu Dhabi. The last piece of Formula One news is that Haas has finally announced overnight that they will be replacing Mick Schumacher in the car next year with Nico Hulkenberg, so the Hulkenback is completed. We'll talk about this more later in the podcast, but with one race to go, let's talk about some watch news. After last week's action-packed auctions and GPHG, it's starting to feel like the quiet time in the watch industry. There are auctions coming up at the end of the month, and again in the beginning of December, but there probably won't be any new releases of watches, or very few off-cycle releases, but for now, things are pretty quiet in the watch industry through the holidays and waiting for Q1 of 2023 for trade shows and new releases. Something worth speaking about to provide some context for the state of the modern watch industry is the quartz crisis. This is a time when, basically, the entire mechanical watch industry feared for its life as the first battery-powered quartz watches came into being. Everyone thought the industry was dead. Hell, even James Bond switched to wearing a quartz watch before returning to wearing a mechanical watch. It was a time when everyone was chasing technology. Let's dive into what the quartz crisis meant 
for the watch industry and how we ended up with the watch market that we have today. Up to the early 20th century, the only, quote, watch that was around was a pocket watch. There were clocks and marine chronometers that were produced, but only pocket watches were available. There were no wrist watches. But at the turn of the 20th century, an age of aviation, motor racing, and exploration, watches began to migrate from the pocket to the wrist. Louis Cartier of the House of Cartier was commissioned by Alberto Santos Dumont, a Brazilian-born aristocrat living and experimenting with aviation in Paris, to make him a wristwatch for flying. The watch gained in popularity as people saw Santos Dumont wearing this wrist-worn watch around, and it became de rigueur among aristocratic men. And a wristwatch in the form of the Santos became a regular part of the production line at Cartier from 1911 onward. It is still in production today. At the same time, the Americas were on the watchmaking map, and many companies in the United States were at the fore of working on railroad watches, pocket watches designed for travelers. American watches were often preferred to their imported counterparts, as the Swiss watch industry tended to only export their cheaper product. With watchmaking spread across the globe, when World War I broke out, officers and servicemen needed to take their pocket watch and move it to their wrist. The pocket watch was impractical for timing artillery, and it was truly impractical for trench warfare. And the world of wristwatches began to open up. Following World War II, Switzerland firmly established itself as the watchmaking capital of the world. Partly due to its neutrality during the war, where none of the workshops were harmed or bombed, and in other regions of the world, those watchmaking regions simply no longer existed, or the factories had been converted into the production of war material. The Swiss did not have to convert their watchmaking factories to making marine chronometers and artillery clocks or other war material. They could simply continue to produce watches as they saw fit. As World War II drew to a close, it was seen as a necessity for everyone to have their own wristwatch. And this is when Swiss watches really began to gain prominence, because the Swiss realized they had an opportunity and started exporting a higher quality of product, and their reputation was born. Hamilton, a U.S.-based watchmaker, would introduce the first electric watch in 1957. They would go on to partner with Ricoh to create electric watches for the Japanese market, but the partnership would dissolve after a decade's time and not be very successful, mostly due to the market domination of Seiko within Japan. In 1962, seeing the writing on the wall, a conglomerate of Swiss companies, including Omega, Piaget, and Patek Philippe, created the Centre Electronique Horlogère, or CEH, in Neuchâtel to develop a quartz watch. Spoiler alert, they lost. On Christmas Day in 1969, the watch world shuddered as Seiko released the first quartz-powered watch, the Astron. The battle wasn't just about battery-operated or mechanical watches. Switzerland held 50% of the market share on watchmaking at this time. The loss of the trade would topple the Swiss economy. Quartz watches offered two things in addition to looking like the future. They maintain a very accurate time, and they're extremely durable and shock-resistant, not something that can be said of all mechanical watches. 
sales of mechanical watches soon suffered. The Swiss were crestfallen. If they lost watchmaking, it would be as if their entire national identity had disappeared. The reason this period in time is called the Quartz Crisis is because the Swiss had been marketing their watches on this idea that they were durable, reliable, precise mechanical devices that could be repaired. When you have a battery-powered or quartz watch that is able to keep more accurate time and be more durable than the Swiss mechanical counterpart, that was a problem for the marketing of the Swiss watch industry. This led to a decline in sales of automatic watches and led to a rise in sales of battery-powered quartz watches. That was a problem for Switzerland, who had the lion's share of the watch market. During this time, many brands disappeared. It was a time of great loss for the watchmaking industry. Many brands across the globe went out of business. They simply couldn't maintain making watches at the loss that they were incurring. This is why this is referred to as a crisis. This really was a time of terrible tragedy for the watch industry, losing many great brands and many great watchmakers. Soon, Swiss watch brands saw the writing on the wall and began to produce quartz watches. Omega, Patek Philippe, and many other prestigious watchmaking names gave in to technology and embraced this new idea of a battery-powered watch. They were producing quartz watches, which soon were more in demand than their automatic counterparts. The results were dramatic. Many Swiss brands went out of business. The number of watchmakers in the country fell drastically, and the craft of watchmaking, it seemed, was on its deathbed. Or was it? The survival of the Swiss watch industry was in the balance when two men stepped forward to save it, Ernst Tomke and Nicholas G. Hayek. Tomke was the head of Eta S.A. Yes, the same Eta that produces base movements for many brands. Eta was owned by A-S-U-A-G, an acronym for a series of complex German words that I'm not even going to attempt to tackle here. Due to his work in building up the Eta brand, Tomke would be appointed to the brand of A-S-U-A-G. It was here that he would meet Nicholas Hayek. He would work with banks to restructure and save the business during the court's crisis, but he needed the help of Nicholas Hayek, then a business consultant, to complete the merger with SSIH, the Société Suisse pour l'Industrie Horlogère. This merger would be the predecessor to and become the Swatch Group. The completion of this merger and the development of the Swatch Group would prove instrumental in saving the industry. Their cheap Swatch watches with relatively few moving parts, which were meant to be a throwaway item, caught on. There was a light at the end of the tunnel for watchmakers now. For those who were young and enterprising, it was a time when watch brands could be brought back and revived. They could bring these brands back to life. One such gentleman, who is well-known in the watch industry today, was Jean-Claude Biver, who purchased the rights to the Blancpain name and joined Hayek at the Swatch Group. He would then continue his work with Zenith and move over to Omega, where he would help secure the exclusive rights as Omega to be the only timepiece worn by the one and only 007, James Bond. From here, it was a monumental project to rebuild the Swiss watch industry. But slowly, little by little, the industry began to recover. In 1985, two watchmakers created the AHCI, 
l'Académie Horlogère de Créatures Indépendantes, or a platform for independent watchmakers to showcase their work and spread their name and prove to the world that Swiss handmade watchmaking was still alive and well within the country. Sven Andersen and Vincent Calabresi, both watchmakers working in Switzerland, wanted to give a voice to the small independent watchmaker who was not a part of a large group brand like the Swatch Group. This gave rise to independent watchmakers like Daniel Roth, Frank Mueller, Philippe Dufour. Most helped to revive well-known brands who were against the ropes or had disappeared altogether during the quartz crisis. They all cut their teeth and honed their skills working for larger brands. Through the AHCI, these independent watchmakers now had a platform through which to promote their work and their particular vision of watchmaking. It was at the same time that smaller bands of watchmakers who wanted to express their vision began to form. In 1989, Denis Flagellet, Vianney Halter, and Francois-Paul Journe would get together and form Technique Horlogère Appliquée, or THA, THA, for those of you listening in English. All three would go on to become successful independent watchmakers, with Denny being the only non-member of the AHCI. Thomas Baumgartner, brother of Erwerk co-founder Felix Baumgartner, would also go on to work at THA for a time. Dominic Renaud and Giulio Papi met at the skeleton workshop of Audemars Piguet and spoke about their desire to get out of the bureaucracy of the Swiss watch industry and do their own thing. They didn't want to wait for 20 years to be trusted to work on a high-complication watch. They wanted to do it while they were young, so they could learn, build, and innovate as watchmakers. So in 1986, they began Renaud et Papi, which would later take on an investment from Audemars Piguet to become Audemars Piguet, Renaud et Papi, or simply APRP. Renaud and Papi would become a proving ground for young independent watchmakers. Their ranks included Tim and Bart Gronfeld, Robert Grubel and Stephen Forsey of Grubel Forsey, Andreas Strehler, Anthony de Haas, Carol Forestier Casapi, who would work with Ulysse Nardin, later run Cartier's watchmaking programs and is now at Tag Heuer, Peter Speak Marin, amongst many other independent watchmakers. This group of watchmakers all cut their teeth at the ranks of APRP, learning how to make watches, and they all wanted to take on the adventure and challenge of working on complicated watches before the bureaucracy of the industry would let them do so. They wanted to challenge the convention and have been rewarded for it. When Nicholas Hayek, who went on to be the head of Swatch Group and Omega, and Ernst Tomke got together and built the Swatch Group, it was a time when many brands had to band together under one banner in order to pool resources and save their own brand. This is when the large group brands started to form out of the quartz crisis because together they were able to have the resources they needed to continue to build watches. It was this force that really gave rise to the watch market that we know today. There are still many group brands out there. The Swatch Group still exists. Richemont exists. LVMH has a large watchmaking presence. And they own many different brands across a spectrum of design languages and profiles. But what also came from the quartz crisis was the rise of the independent watchmaker and the independent creator. And I think this is one of the most fundamentally important things that came from the quartz crisis. 
Many young watchmakers who had worked through the quartz crisis or gone to watchmaking school during this time period realized that the bureaucracy of the industry was set up so that they wouldn't work on anything complicated or interesting for 20-plus years until they had proved themselves to leadership and to everyone within the company. Many young watchmakers realized that this was an incredibly long time to wait and that they went to watchmaking school to learn how to make these high-complication watches, and they wanted to be able to do that before they reached the 20-year mark in their career. It was this drive that led to groups like APRP and THA, where amazing watches came out of, but due to the nature of non-disclosure agreements, we probably won't know everything that these groups worked on, but we do know some of it, and it's all fascinating and amazing watchmaking. Those young watchmakers would leave these smaller groups like Teja and APRP and go on to build their own brands. And those are the independents that we know today. And if it weren't for those smaller movement development laboratories that gave us these creators today, we probably wouldn't have independent watchmaking on the scale that we do. We also have to think about the coronavirus pandemic, which as a result of the coronavirus pandemic, the watch market grew tremendously. People weren't able to leave their homes. They weren't able to travel. They weren't able to go spend disposable income on other things. So watches were one of the commodities that they could actually acquire during this time. As people began to acquire watches, the availability of watches within the marketplace started to dry up. So many collectors and many entrants into the watch market were forced to look at independent brands where watches were still plentiful and available in retail showcases and at retailers around the world. Once those stocks started to dry up, the demand for independent watchmaking was through the roof and many brands can't even service that demand. A number of brands have had to close their order books because they can't actually fulfill the demand that they've gotten as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. So what has been a terrible tragedy for the world has actually been a tremendous boost to the watch industry, but it's now harming the watch industry because the supply chain simply can't cope with the demand. I think this is going to change the way group brands and independent watchmakers work going forward. I think many independent watchmakers who are well capitalized will now go on to actually bring as many functions as they possibly can in-house buying their suppliers or going out and finding other suppliers that they can buy and bring in-house then to their own brand. I think this is going to force a fundamental rethink of how the watch industry works. I think many of the group brands have too many SKUs and too many pieces, and they're producing not enough of what people are actually looking for in the marketplace. So I think there might be a little bit of a turnover here, especially as there's a downturn in the watch market and prices start to soften. I think group brands are really going to have to look carefully at their SKUs and decide what they want to have in their product lineup. For independents, I think they have to get some capital in the door and figure out how to shore up their supply chains because they need to be able to meet the demand going forward. For many, I fear, I hope that they don't try and overproduce or meet the production demand that they have now. I hope they leave people wanting because I think that's the key to their success and how they continue to build going forward. My big takeaway from the auctions last week and from GPHG are that this was an incredibly positive time for independent watchmakers. Many of the watchmakers are getting the attention that they deserve, and I think this is a great thing for the watch market. 
I hope that they're able to maintain their demand and really service that demand going forward. So thanks to two crises, one for the Swiss people and for the Swiss watchmaking industry, and one globally, the watch market is very strong. More people are in it than ever before. And thanks to things like Formula One and golf and tennis for actually promoting the world of watches, because that brings new people in. And this is an industry that always needs new people, new voices, and new perspectives on the watch. The quartz crisis also proved the resilience of the Swiss watch industry. Not only did it survive, but many young, hungry business people were able to buy brands or the right to brands and revive them as they saw fit, bring back their most iconic pieces, and keep those brands alive and well. I think this is something that was really great for the Swiss watch industry. There's a little bit of that happening now across the watch industry with some brands being revived and new micro brands being introduced all the time. And I think this is really healthy for the watch ecosystem. The quartz crisis didn't kill the Swiss watchmaking industry. Instead, it brought out those artisans who were truly the most interested in expressing their vision on watchmaking and what watchmaking should be which gave rise to the independent watchmakers of today. And for that, I can't thank the Quartz Watch enough because it has given people something to look forward to. It has given watchmakers a chance to take the watch from being something that was just a timekeeping device and turn it into mechanical art. And that, I think, is what we're all around the watch industry to celebrate. Just like when the pocket watch became superfluous and the wristwatch became the main means of telling time, the quartz crisis killed the wristwatch, which allowed it to be reborn as a work of art. The quartz crisis may have done irreparable damage to the Swiss watch industry, but it did give rise to an era of independent watchmaking that we currently enjoy today. As we have seen from the auction results and the interest in watches over the last few years, watches and the watch market are stronger than ever. The quartz crisis was an important turning point for the Swiss watch industry. It helped the industry to realize that it wasn't the only player in the market and that in order to maintain its market position, it needed to generate better and more interesting watches. This gave rise to the era of the independent watchmaker that we currently enjoy today. The quartz crisis while not necessarily related to motorsport, was an important turning point for the Swiss watch industry, and one that allows brands like Rolex, Richard Mille, and Tag Heuer to participate in Formula One today. All in, Brazil was a great weekend of racing, and I'm excited that the season is coming to a close. Last weekend, we saw some fireworks from teammate pairings as they prepare for the final races of the season, and get ready to move on from the 2022 season. And in some cases, drivers are moving on to new teams or leaving the sport altogether. Prior to recording this podcast, I had written an entire segment on Mick Schumacher as his fate hung in the balance. But I awoke this morning to the news that Haas has signed former F1 driver and K-Mag nemesis Nico Hulkenberg to the team, completing the Hulkenback. I'm sorry to see Mick go, and I'm sorry to see the Schumacher name leave Formula One. But I understand the decision from a cost perspective by Haas, and 
Hulkenberg gives them a German driver so they can keep their German sponsors happy. I hope that Mick lands on his feet. I know this will be a crushing blow to him, but hopefully he can find a reserve driver position, stay relevant to the sport, and get back on the grid in 2024. If not, if he's feeling burnt and wants to move on, I think he could have a successful career in another series. He's a very talented driver, having won the Formula 2 championship. Formula 1 is just such a huge step beyond Formula 2. Look at how many past champions from Formula 2 have come up and how hard they've struggled in Formula 1. As I mentioned last episode, I still think Mick could have a tremendous career ahead of him as a philanthropist supporting research into brain and spinal injuries and potentially pairing with research on CTE. Regardless of what happens, I wish Mick Schumacher the best. I hope he can find a reserve driver role and find his way back to the grid in 2024. And I hope, actually, that he and Ricardo both find their way back to the grid for 2024. I think they're both talented drivers. I think they're both great personalities for the sport. And I think that they both bring something unique in their own perspective. I just don't think the Haas car was the right car for Mick to get into. I don't think it's very drivable for anyone but Kevin Magnussen. But we'll judge that next year when we see how Hulkenberg gets along with the car. I want to leave this podcast by saying I'm not negative or down on Formula One. I'm just kind of ready for the end of what has felt like a very long season. We're racing this weekend in Abu Dhabi, and in the final Grand Prix of the season, the only thing left to decide is the finishing order of the best of the rest in the Drivers' Championship. I'm looking forward to putting this season behind us. I think that 24 races in the 2024 season is going to be insane. That's going to be a lot of pressure, not only on the drivers, on the teams, and on all the support staff. And I think it's going to be a tremendous strain on viewership. I can't wait to see how Liberty Media plans to keep the season interesting and keep people engaged throughout the year. I am your faithful host, Todd Searle. I'll be taking next week off to celebrate Thanksgiving here in the United States. But we're racing in Abu Dhabi this weekend. Can't wait to see how the best of the rest finish out and see what fireworks we get in the last race of the season. I'll be back with an update on the end of the F1 season, watch auctions in Hong Kong, and to talk to you a little bit more about the history of watches and motorsport. See you for the next episode. Have a great week, everyone. Keep moving forward.